0: Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show.
1: It's one thing to be a, a, a spokesperson on behalf of someone, but it's another thing to be proximate uh, enough to learn the stories of individuals uh, that you want to pass the microphone to. We don't need any more people being a voice for the voiceless. Uh, We have voices already. Some people's voices are heard while others are silenced. We need advocates that are daring and bold enough to use their privilege to pass the microphone.
2: Trigger warning this podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations listener discretion is advised you are listening to the preacher boys podcast a podcast shedding light on decades of mental physical and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental baptist movement the testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors
0: all right, everybody, welcome back to the Preacher Boys Podcast. Terrence, thank you so much for joining me on today's show.
1: Eric, I'm really excited to be here and have a conversation with you.
0: I was telling you right before I hit record the the reason I really wanted to chat with you is I think there's a lot of people when they find out about any kind of issue, whether it's homelessness, whether it's poverty, whether it's you know sexual abuse, whatever that issue is, people get really passionate about doing something about it. You know, they get that that. Kind of fire burning. Say, I want to do something. I want to help, uh, but there's not a lot of really good resources out there for those who want to be advocates and for those that want to make a difference and and learn how they can how they can be a part in making the world a little bit of a better place. Um, I wanted to bring you on to kind of talk through that. Your book, uh, When We Stand, is really a, a great kind of toolbox to kind of walk you through some of that. But tell me a little bit about your journey. What got you started uh, on the path that you're currently on? What is it that, you know, first opened your eyes to to some changes that need to be made? And how did you begin your journey as an advocate?
1: Yeah, it's a great uh, question and great lean in. Um, firstly, I would like to say that advocacy is is not a momentary thing. Uh, it's something that you should commit yourself to um, with a elongated. Uh, view of being involved in an issue. I think we we kind of like over sensationalize advocacy in the modern context yeah. where uh, advocacy is all, all all reduced down to a trend and not necessarily uh, something that is seen as something that you should commit and give your entire life to. And I, I use that as a segue because I never saw myself uh, being in the work that I'm, I'm currently doing. I think uh, one of the pivotal moments for me was realizing how my own trauma uh, could be something that was empowering and liberating uh, versus uh, being something that is oppressive. I know on this show, you talk a lot about uh, people uh, uh, you know, escaping sex trafficking and uh, uh, abusive situations. And so Although my story isn't uh, ideally that, uh, there was a lot of traumatic experiences that I had early on in my childhood. Um, I could talk about how, you know, at 16 and a half years old, I experienced acute homelessness uh, from time to time, sleeping in parks, et cetera, and never really even thought about how the pain that I was experiencing in the moment would be translated or have some type of transmutation to be uh, use for something for the greater good. I had a mentor, uh, you know, come into my life early on when I was a a lot younger, uh, that would call out the good with me. And it wasn't from a perspective of him trying to just, you know, do something cool for the moment. Uh, he, uh, Mr. Moore was a person that was really proximate in my life and practiced this idea of presence, right? Um, he saw me not as a project, but as someone that he could walk alongside. And I think, uh, you know, with him showing up in my life uh, was, you know, a huge catalyst for my life starting to change. And for me, you know, starting to find my own sense of self and my own voice and my own purpose uh, in my, in my faith, Um, you know, essentially he, he became a disciple and I'll never forget, uh, you know, years before starting the organization, when we had a a very intentional conversation and he told me that at some moment in my life, I would be able to use the things that I have uh, been liberated from uh, to relate to other people who are also caught in the struggles. And and, um, I just so happened to translate into a nonprofit. Uh, I never thought that I would be in ministry in this way or doing the type of work that I'm doing. But I allowed that uh, pain uh, um, to become a God, right? I I was able to embrace it. I was able to work through and process a lot of the things that I had gone through, but it it became a God. And once it becomes a God, it also produces a gift. And uh, that gift is served to the world. And so I found advocacy not only through Uh, intellect, and understanding the plights that are uh, prevalent in society and culture as it relates to uh, people experiencing homelessness and poverty. But I I tapped into this inner resource, right, of things that I had gone through uh, and using those things as a vehicle to develop compassion and empathy towards others who are also caught in the same types of plight.
0: Yeah, I want to take a a step off to the side for a second, because I, there's a part of your story that I think is interesting. You know, you, you have a mentor who is kind of there, there with you, like you said, and I love that you say this, it's not a moment, like this is a a lifestyle, like trying to help people, trying to, trying to encourage other people. But one of the things that, uh, that you mentioned is that he told you, you know, one day this is going to be used in a, in a really good way. One day you're going to be able to share this. And you know, I've seen people that do this in a really good, healthy way, but a lot of people, I think, reach in and, and almost, almost make someone's situation or make someone's trauma small. You know, they go in and say, "Yeah, this happened to you, but you know, all things work together for good." You know, and then they kind of leave you with that and and jump. You know, um, or they'll come in and say, "You know, well, God has a plan for everything," and pat you on the shoulder and, and walk out. So what is a way for somebody who maybe hasn't experienced a specific trauma to be able to reach over, encourage somebody without, you know, belittling the experience or the, or the gravity of the trauma that they've experienced?
1: Man, that's a great point. And I can tell you emphatically that it took years Hmm. and years and years of leaning in and failing and falling and having someone as a Mr. Moore with, um, you know, uh, grace, uh, for me to process all of the, the work that is needed, uh, for recovery. I think any type of, uh, person of faith that wants to rush a person past their grief or past the traumatic experiences is very toxic, right? Um, if, if, If we do that, then uh, why was Jesus on the cross? Why was Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? Uh, You know, why did Jesus go through the excruciating pain of, um, you know, of of the suffering? I think uh, the part of Jesus that we get a chance to relate to most is that suffering, right? That, um, you know, idealistic Christians tend to, to rush past. And so, for me, I think to be a healthy advocate, I think uh, one, um, sometimes it's just the proximity of presence. I think too often we try to rush to give people answers, right? And yeah. in many cases, there are no quick fixes, right? Yeah. Some some people take years to overcome trauma. I mean, years, brother, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, of continuing to show up and you know cry and question. And, and wrestle and uh wrestle in the greatness, right? I think oftentimes people think that uh because you are a person of faith that you're always on, right? And uh that isn't the type of uh Jesus that I, I would like to display to others who are caught in the plights that I have no uh no real understanding about. I think Many times we try to set ourselves up as the experts in people's lives, and miss and miss the opportunity to just be present. Sometimes being present is just listening. Sometimes being present is just checking in. Sometimes being present is showing up uh, without any answers, right? And uh, validating someone's existence and someone's trauma and someone's realities, their existential realities without trying to heal. Uh, That's one of the reasons why I like the uh, writer, Henry Nowing, right? Uh, Because he talks a lot about people returning home, right? And getting a sense of self and being, um, and finding out that they're they're the beloved of God. But sometimes that takes a process, right? We shouldn't try to push people into a a process of recovery long before they are ready uh, to fully recover. And I see that as, the God of, you know, uh, the guy that shows up through people, um, who are humble enough not to give answers. Um, right. yeah.
0: Yeah. It, it speaks to, in the book, you mentioned like we have an empathy deficit, you know, and I thought that was a really interesting way, way to say that, you know, we have a, we have this, for whatever reason, uh, we, we struggle with just, like you said, leaning in, listening, hearing what another person has to say. And I think the, one of the reasons we struggle is that it does take patience. You know, I think we want to, you know, whether we would audibly say it or not, we do tend to look at ourselves as wise or experts or, you know, and if I say this verse at the right time, or if I say this quote at the right time, this is going to change everything and undo years of trauma. And that's just not how it works. Um, my, I definitely want to, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more of the advocacy side, but I, I also want to go to the flip side. Cause you mentioned, you know, the process of, of taking it from where your trauma is essentially a God in your life. It's something that you're spending a lot of time really, uh, you know, really st- you're stuck in this position of like, I was in this horrible, horrible situation. And I think there's a balance there, right? Like you experience something horrible you're going to spend like, that's never going to leave you like trauma stays with you your entire life, like just mentally and and psychologically it stays with you. Um, Can you talk a little bit about maybe even just using your own self as a personal example? How do you go from, you know, talking about it, dwelling in in an unhealthy way to being able to, it's still a big part of your story and being able to share it in a healthy way and being able to deal with it and process it in a way that is healthy for you and, and positive for you.
1: Yeah, well, I think that happens in uh, phases. Uh, I think the first phase of that is, you know, it is the awareness of it. Uh, This is something that has, uh, you know, affected me in some way, um, whether consciously or unconsciously. But really doing that internal work and wrestling with the the realities of how the trauma has affected you. I think the the second step is you know, finding those safe spaces, uh, licensed safe spaces, right? Because Christians can do a lot of damage to people's mental mental health, right? And, um, you know, I I was able to find those spaces early on uh, to help process some of the things that I had no no answers for. And Mm -hmm. the goal of counseling um, or any type of uh, psychotherapist it's not necessarily to give you answers, but to help you to make discoveries on your own, right? Mm -hmm. I think that is uh, the healthy part of counseling. I have a graduate degree in mental health counseling. And I later learned that uh, later on, that the goal of counseling is not to necessarily give answers. And I found those spaces that would help me first express uh, my feelings about it, right? Um, And then uh, as I express my feelings, that gave me some sense of um, understanding, right? Um, And then I was able to express my emotions about what I understood. And then ultimately I was able to let it go. And when I say let it go, let it go from having control over me, Mm. um, which is uh, the other part of the healthy process. Because if you don't express your feelings, right? Uh, whatever uh, feelings you have that derives from whatever traumatic experience. Um, If you don't have someone who is licensed and a professional helping you to understand uh, alternative ways of of looking at it, or even questioning and reflecting back to you, um, your your processes, uh, then you won't tap into the emotions. And I think in the unconscious, are where the emotions are suppressed and are frozen right that gives us the low affect right which affects us uh, personally uh but you go through that process ultimately to uh to let it go brother and it was you know moments in my life where i started to accept things that happened uh, and remove myself as the problem of why they happen mm. um which is huge because you stop internalizing as if it's your fault. Mm. And then you start to process it as something as being something that you could accept that I've gone through, but then you realize that you're not the only one, Mm. right? That there's a community of suffering that has same or similar types of, of, of things. Um, And then uh, I think the last thing was also uh, placing myself in a community of people that would continue to be a support. And I think there's something to be said about vulnerability, that um, when we choose to be vulnerable in safe spaces um, until we build up our confidence, that it actually reinforces our voice uh, Mm -hmm. as we discover how our voice has been shaped by the trauma that we've gone through. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh, that's, that's really powerful. Um, I I'm, I definitely want to talk, I mean, like I mentioned, I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this lifestyle of being an advocate of, of you know, whether you want to call it advocacy, activism, you know, taking, uh, being mobilized to try to attack a certain problem. Um, and, you know, for you, that has been, you know, homelessness that has been really, uh, you've been going full force, taking that on. And uh, first and foremost, I guess I would, I would want to know, Um, one of the, one of the big issues I think for, you know, for a lot of us is we see so many different issues in the world. There's so many things we can tackle. Um, how do you choose where your time is best spent addressing a certain issue? Um, obviously your personal experience can help guide you to what you're going to address, but for somebody who's listening, who's saying that we have homelessness, we have abuse, we have, uh, you know, an orphan crisis in this country, like how do you recommend people sit down and you know, figure out where to extend that work? Because a lot of us stretch ourselves and say, oh, we give some money here, give some money here. But I think having a focus on a certain issue is really important um, if we want to be effective. So how do you recommend someone go about doing that?
1: I can take you a little bit through my process and then hopefully, hopefully can offer some suggestions. and And for me, it's always started with things that are very existential and present in my life. Um, I think that kind of shapes my heart to be a little more sensitive to issues. Uh, you know, and then there are things where, uh, it has affected people that I care about. Right. Mm. Um, and those people are close to me. And so I've seen many people become really passionate about things that have affected, uh, loved ones. Uh, and then, you know, another thing that helped me early on was just getting active you know, figuring out what was around me uh, in my social location, you know, researching, uh, you know, understanding my own uh, wiring and my gifts and my skill sets, and not just like blindedly uh, picking a place, but uh, seeing how, how I'm wired as an individual could fit the type of environment that I may uh, discover. Yeah. You know, one thing about getting active is that you get a chance to find out really quickly what you like and what you don't like, (laughs) you know? Um, it's like, uh, I went skiing one time, never again. Right. Um, I tried it out. I I thought it was cool. I, I think the pictures are cool when they're posted online, but, uh, would I get involved in skiing again? No, never again. Uh, and I think it's going through that process of, of getting involved and being, you know, really, uh, you know, really practical with how many, you know, projects you can get involved with and then asking yourself hard questions, you know, what is it about this project that makes me want to show up again? Uh, you know, what is it about this project that keeps me up at night or wakes me up in the early AM, uh, that makes me really irritated or agitated, you know, those are some of the telltale signs that, you know, this is a thing that you are really drawn to. Um, and then uh, understanding that it's something that you don't force, right? Like when I get up in the morning, I, I don't feel like I'm forcing the work that I'm doing, right? I have this sense of peace uh, that comes about when I'm doing this work. And it almost feels as as though it's second nature, right? Um, and it it doesn't feel like a task, you know, you want to involve yourself in the things that uh, don't really feel burdensome. Is it OK to care about many different issues? Yeah. But when it comes to focus, you want to zero in on the things that aligns with your skill sets, uh, your gifts, maybe geography, uh, the location around you and the things that uh, agitate you the most. You know, uh, everybody has things that agitates them from a broader perspective, but you only, you know, those, those things or that one thing that really just irks you the most. And, uh, as a mentor used to say in the past, uh, whatever makes you mad, if you use the word mad as an acronym, uh, that's the area you're supposed to make a difference in.
0: You, you kind of mentioned obviously putting on a false front or like forcing, you know, maybe not even a false front, but just forcing yourself into a position where look, I'm an advocate, you know, and, and, you know, People mock corporations all the time for slapping a a logo on their on their website or or you know doing something to look like they're supportive of somebody when it's really just a PR thing. Um, but I, I think also for a lot of people, I think they sense that it is something they need to do. Um and so they're just kind of scattershot trying to jump onto every, you know, every movement, help with every different, you know, situation. Um, but you mentioned your book, like busyness doesn't always mean you're being effective. You know, you can be involved in a lot of different things. You can be spreading yourself across a bunch of different ministries and things like that. Um, but can you talk a little bit about getting, getting very focused, um, and getting more effective, uh, you can even bring in, you mentioned your let go list in the, in the book, you know, kind of what are some of the things you can do to really get singular in your focus and, and actually start being effective.
1: Often say it's not a it's not a matter of willingness; it's a matter of a, um, of, a of availability, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a lot of people who are willing uh, to get involved in uh, issues, but they don't have the margin to actually get involved in a single issue or focused area in the rhythmic way. I'm not talking about the event orientation of service or justice work. I'm talking about making um, this, this, uh, this area of focus, a part of the fabric of, of who you are as a person. And that starts with margin, right? If you can only get involved once or twice a year, then you have to really ask yourself, do I have too many things on my plate that's keeping me from doing the work of God in the area where I may be needed most? Um, and, you know, so often we are concerned with, you know, the to-do list. What do I have to do next? And we, we love constructing calendars and building out things to feel productive. But busyness doesn't always correlate to bro- productivity. And we know this, right? There are some people who have become really busy and they use busyness as a distraction from doing the internal work that we were talking about earlier. Uh, they're running from uh, trauma or running from some aspect of their lives. And they try to keep a full schedule or a calendar to distract themselves from it. And then there are other people who, who just like the badge of honor of burnout, right? <laughs> like, I just want to always have the rebuttal that, you know, I'm busy. Uh, busyness is not a badge of honor. Uh, is actually something that keeps you from Uh, doing the work of God or, you know, walking humbly and doing justly, right? Um, I think, uh, so to go back to my point, we need to kind of move into what I, I call the let go list. We need to be real with ourselves about the things that we are involved in that may not necessarily be bad things. They may be good things, but they're not the things that have any eternal value or the things that we are actually leveraging to make a difference or the things that will be most meaningful to us. Um, But we, we get sucked into attachments, right? right? We get really attached to doing things a certain way or having some things on our calendar, because we think if we are void of those things then somehow something will be missing. And what I'm arguing in that chapter is, you know, your let go list and the things that you really wrestle with that you need to remove off your plate could actually free yourself up, uh, to get involved in the single cause or issue that you've been longing to, to get involved with, not in the event orientation, but in the rhythmic way where it becomes a part of your everyday life.
0: Right. Well, it, it, it goes back to what you're saying. Like, it's not a moment. So like when you have it, uh, you know, for me with, with sexual abuse, like that's not something I think about from six o'clock to eight o'clock on my calendar. Like that's something that's always somewhere in the back of my head. It's not constantly overwhelming noise, you know, which, which it used to be when I first became aware of the issue. Um, But now it's, it's, but it is this low kind of hum in the background going like that is there. Like, that's just part of something I'm always thinking about. How can you address it? How can you talk about it better? How can you create something that's going to raise attention on it? And, but like you said, it, it, it's not something I'm having to remind myself to think about or remind myself, oh, I have to be passionate about this today. Um, And you see a lot of people do that. You know, it's, it's almost that mission trip mentality. You know, it's like from this day to this day, I'm really passionate about Uganda. You know, like we're going to go paint schools and then you're never going to worry about it ever again it's easy to do that with a lot of these different, you know, opportunities for activism. Cause there's plenty of causes to do that for, and there's plenty that, you know, like a ski trip look really good on Instagram. You know, if you can snap that picture, you know, here and there. So,
1: yeah. And to your point um, that's what we want to push back against Yeah, is the, you know, the one-offs I think, we need more people who view service as a lifestyle mm. who view, who views their cause as a part of the fabric of their core values. Right. Yeah. Um, who even see it as an act of worship unto God, mm. <laughs> um, which is a bold statement because we normally think about worship in the corporate setting, but service itself can be an uh, act of worship, yeah. you know, that out of the outflow of, of my heart, I'm showing up for my community. I'm standing up uh, for the justice issue that plagues my neighbor, right? Yeah. And if I'm called to love my neighbor, I also have to be concerned about the neighborhood that the neighbor emerges from,
0: right. and the,
1: the 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 issues that the neighborhood faces, right? Right. It, it's just going a little deeper down in in being more proximate and present. Right. And I, I think what you just said was spot on.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I always think about uh, James where it says pure and undefiled religion is visiting the fatherless and widows, you know, and, and, you know, that idea of being socially active is in scripture, like the idea of going and caring for other people. And, you know, that's it's not. Oh, you have your spiritual side, then you have your side that's helping people. Like it's all, it's all combined uh, when you when you get into that conversation. Um, I, I do want to yeah. speak into that a little bit. Um, so one of the things that um, you know, we've mentioned a little bit, kind of spiritually bypassing people. You know, oh, let's let's try to rush you through this so you can see the good in the situation. Um, I, I kind of want to talk into that from the perspective of of the church, you know, and, um, I think a lot of times we can be really, and and maybe you haven't seen this, but I, I feel like I've seen this a lot is that we treat people as transactions. Like it's how quickly can I get them to, uh, accept the gospel? How quickly can I get them into a small group? How quickly can I get them to be healed enough to jump into a ministry position or work in a nursery or whatever that is? Um, can you speak to maybe pastors, Christians, you know, ministry workers, you know, can you, can you kind of speak into that and being willing to serve people who may never, you know, become a part of your church, being willing to serve people who may not be interested in the gospel, being w- willing to minister to people that, that aren't part of your team essentially. Uh, Cause I think sometimes there's a, there's this mentality. I've, I've seen homeless shelters, um, you know, where, you know, we won't serve them a meal until they listen to a gospel presentation or th- we won't, you know, give them a room unless they are attending services here. And, you know, th- this kind of stuff. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and, and how we can serve people, even if they're not part of our, quote unquote, camp?
1: Yeah. And I, I think that for me, it's. Um, we never see Jesus doing that. <laughs> mm. yeah. Um and to be honest I think it's it can b- become very toxic when you make your love uh conditional. Yeah. And based upon qualifiers, right? Yeah. That if you are operating from a space where people have to qualify to be loved by God through you, then you're doing God a disservice. Mm. That can become very damaging, bro. I've seen so many people experiencing homelessness hurt and turned off much more by the expectations that Christians have, have placed on them than by the genuine love of God that should have been present with not even ever saying anything. And my, my whole stance on this is, um, you know, um, I don't think people should have to qualify for me to express uh, the love of God uh, towards them. I don't I don't uh, have any expectations of people, uh, you know, walking in certain spaces that I feel like they need to walk into to be uh, accepted uh, Mm -hmm. because I'm coming from a place of wanting to really embody what Jesus meant when he says, you know, go out into the highways and the byways, uh, be present with people,
2: yeah.
1: you know, it's just extending the table mentality. And I think oftentimes churches can, you know, uh, uh, you know, forget that they are called to extend tables of welcome and start building walls of distance, uh, because all of the qualifiers are walls and they separate us from, uh, really sharing the love of God with people, who may not be like us or come from the same social social location or believe the same way that we do or have addresses in the gated communities that we have addresses in. And how dare we restrict the love of God based upon our own uh, qualifiers that we have placed on people. Um, So it, it just becomes a very toxic thing. And then I think it's a misrepresentation of the character of God because Uh, People can look at that and say, well, how can I believe this God of love when you won't even accept me uh, because I don't even have shoes on? Or you won't let me into a restaurant and ask for water uh, because I'm without an address? Like it's all of these lists of of things that we, you know, try to force people into. And the, the reality is that everybody won't darken the doors of your church uh, but that doesn't mean that they shouldn't have a meal or bed to sleep in or a roof over their heads. Everybody won't listen to a gospel presentation. Sometimes the best gospel presentation is uh, comes out through how you live out through your feet, right? It's orthopraxy, you know. Hmm. Uh, sometimes the, the best gospel presentation is how did you love the person who could give you nothing in return, hmm. uh, you know. And I, I'll throw out the text, man. That's how I see Uh, Jesus living his life and Jesus was known for seeing people. You know, Mm. I I love the passages that reads and Jesus saw. Um, And sometimes we see people, but we walk away when they don't fit our, um, our check boxes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now I've seen that so many times, even with the show and, and I'm dealing with very, you know, I'm dealing with victims of abuse within a very fundamentalist sect of you know Christians and and you know there, there's a there's some good people that are more conservative, and then there's also some people that are you know they they lean toward that almost you know that very extreme <laughs> kind of sect and and there's you know I see that happen where someone will share about abuse that happened as a child in the church, and you know the pastor will say well you know you don't have credibility because now you're sleeping with somebody outside of marriage. And it's like, what does that thing have to do with this very real trauma? And, you know, it's again, it's those qualifiers you mentioned, where we want to make sure that someone's meeting all of our criteria before we'll hear them, before we'll help them before we'll actually just sit and listen to them. And I think that's really, really unfortunate.
1: I mean, that hurts my heart, even hearing that, that someone would try to disqualify someone's experience um wow
0: yeah
1: and I, I think that is the thing that does more harm than healing right yeah uh but yet we will use uh, scripture uh to justify our mistreatment of neighbor right yeah,
0: yeah. i mean that, yeah, that's it's,
1: um it's unfortunate
0: I mean, that's been, even with, even with myself, I mean, that's one of the, one of the questions I get asked all the time is, you know, are you still a Christian? Are you still, you know, or are you this? And, and, you know, I'm, I'm pretty vocal in the show that I am, you know, like that's, that's something, you know, that's part of who I am. I'm very open about it. Talk about it. Um, You know, but one of the biggest things that has rattled my faith in the last year and a half since starting the show has been the response of pastors and Christians who, you know, it turned a totally deaf ear to, Hey, there's this much abuse happening in this church, or there's this, you know, this is being mishandled the way we, the way we deal with, you know, Christian counseling is broken. The way that we uh, try to listen to, you know, rape victims in the church is broken. You know, the way we treat women is broken. And all that they hear is you're stepping out of line. Are you still one of us? And, you know, my, my point is always, you know, there's a context in which I'm, I'm very happy to talk about my faith and I openly do generally, but if you're, if you're not going to hear, you know, what I'm saying because of, you know, whatever my faith is, you know, if, if, if you're going to say, I don't care to hear about, you know, molestation or rape within the church because you're not one of us, that's a big red flag for me, you know? And that's something that, you know, for me, like I've, I've mentioned time and time again, like that's been the biggest, you know, it's been the biggest thing that's done damage to my faith is seeing Christians and pastors insert those qualifiers before they'll hear about an issue that is a black and white bipartisan, like with your Christian, non-Christian pastor or not, like, let's tackle this, you know, like this is a problem regardless of that. You can ask me about that some other time too, but the issue I'm approaching you with is an issue regardless of who it's coming from, regardless of who's telling you about it. Um, and so it is, it's it's a really, it's really tragic. And it's really tragic when I see that happen to victims, you know, when I see that happen to, um, I've had pastors that have, commented and said, you know, uh she has no credibility because she lives this way now or um you know, they don't have any credibility because they're not a christian now or you know, all of these different statements that blanket somebody as being unhelpable or untrustworthy or unreachable um you know, it's it's really tragic to me and it's one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on is to address <laughs> is to address that kind of mentality because I see in your book, a lot of the opposite, you know, I see that, you know.
1: Yeah. That's... I mean, you think about it, man, people who try to belittle or dismiss um, people based upon their experiences does more to protect the abuser yeah. than the abused, yeah. which is very harmful. And it's antithetical to the life and witness of the G- historical Jesus. I follow, right. <laughs> um, why,
0: do you, why do you think so many struggle with that? Why do you think so many would rather uh, there was, there was a pastor just recently was preaching um, and he was obviously you don't know the whole situation, but just broadly, I mean, just to give context. And he was saying, if somebody from outside of our world, outside of the independent Baptist world credibly accuses somebody, you know, even if they have a good point about somebody within our movement, I'm biased to believe the person in our movement because he's, you know, he's not one of those crazy people outside. He said, basically, I tend to always lean toward agreeing with the person in our camp, even if I'm pretty sure they're wrong, I'm going to stand by them. Uh, Why do you think we tend to have this kind of tribal, you know, mentality when it comes to, to... Who we listen to, who we help, where do you think that comes from? That us versus yeah. them.
1: I think it comes from uh, you know patriarchy, uh, power, uh, dominance. Um, I think it comes from a lot of things, man. And even listening to that as a black man in America, uh, you know this this religious Christian nationalism that is you know largely white, right, um, that has seeped in racism oh. um, uh, since the earliest days of the America's colonial settlement. Um, and with this stance, you know, history is even sanitized, right? <laughs> uh, removing uh, the sins of genocide and slavery and Jim Crow laws and all of the things that uh, has saturated and sustained Um, this very stained society and culture. So like uh, there are times when I'm even uh, called a Marxist or like all of these crazy things because I am both Christian and I am black, but I was black before I was Christian, right? Mm. And my blackness uh, doesn't, uh, uh, it's still... You know, when I walk outside, I still have to think about in the back of my mind, will I be treated, uh, you know, or mishandled inappropriately by people who fear my skin color? They have no idea that I follow Jesus. They have no idea that I leave a, a nonprofit. They have no idea of all of those things. And just because I'm a Christian does not separate me from the mistreatment that I experience in society and culture. And I think it's time for people to really wake up and stop uh, trying to sanitize uh, the stories of those uh, who are black and brown or who have experienced any type of trauma in this this society and culture that has been highly uh, patriarchal and dominated by people who have this affinity and uh, addiction to power. Right. Yeah. Jesus himself was killed <laughs> yeah. uh, and executed because he challenged Uh, people who withheld power from those who were oppressed. Howard Thurman says in his book, Jesus and Disinherited, that Jesus was born poor. He was born a minority and under Roman oppression. And so he understands what it means to have his back against the wall and to be criticized. Um, This same Jesus experienced acute homelessness, sleeping around from place to place, right? While he was, uh, you know, in his, uh, in his earthly ministry, you know, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has what? Nowhere to lay his head, right? Mm. And yet on Sunday mornings, we could uh, worship uh, Jesus who experienced homelessness, but as Christians walk past a person on the street who identifies with uh, the person that we call our savior, right? And I think it's a very dichotomous, uh, you know, um, and cognitive dissonance that's happening amongst people who are in the Christian faith. And and I think uh, it's something that needs to be addressed um, that just because you want to stand up for those who have been oppressed doesn't make you any less Christian. You're just identifying with the person and work of of Jesus. That just because you want to uh, challenge uh, people who withhold power from those who are oppressed with the truth uh, doesn't mean that you're less Christian. And just because you want to side with those who have been abu- abused and victimized and experienced trauma doesn't make you a less Christian than those uh, who who tend to be more um, related in their faith to like, um, you know, what, uh, what some sect or uh, community is doing, right? And I think we need to uh, push back Against some of those narratives, because in many ways, sometimes it can become very legalistic, and people are, are, you know, behaving more out of what a community does versus really modeling what Jesus would do in the scriptures.
0: And I don't want to add too much more to that because I feel like you said it kind of perfectly. But I, I know in your book you you gave an example and kind of drew a parallel between how. Um, Paul spoke to to believers and kind of drew it to Martin Luther King, uh, Martin Luther King, Jr. Uh, speaking about humanity as a world house. Um, and I think that kind of is a perfect stepping stone from where you were just talking. Can you talk a little bit about that um, example, maybe for somebody that's never heard it kind of break down what that looks like and how that changes, how you see the world around you.
1: Yeah. I mean, Martin King in his uh, 1967 Christmas sermon Um, he goes into this, this long um, exposition of how we can't even wake up in the morning without having a global experience. He he starts to say, where did you get your coffee from? Where were the clothes that you have on your back? Where were they made? You know, where did you get your decor from? He, He starts talking about our brothers and sisters from all around the world, right? And he uses World House in this very powerful language to suggest that the world is our address, right? He's trying to to communicate to us that we're all interconnected, and I think uh, people who operate and function from a very separatist mindset uh, tries to disconnect themselves uh, with our with their brothers and sisters or their neighbors around them, right? Um, often times use this this phraseology as you know, uh, Barring King's statement and sentiment of a world house because, you know, when we think about it, what I do for you, brother, I'm also doing it for myself. We are made to live together
3: because of the interrelated structure of reality. And did you ever stop to think that you can't leave for your job in the morning? without being dependent on most of the world. You get up in the morning and go to the bathroom and reach over for a sponge and that's handed to you by a Pacific Islander. You reach for a bar of soap and that's given to you at the hands of a Frenchman. And then you go in the kitchen to drink your coffee for the morning. That's poured in your cup by a South American Or maybe you want tea, that's poured in your cup by a Chinese. Or maybe you're desirous of having cocoa for breakfast, and that's poured in your cup by a West African. And then you reach over for your toast, and that's given to you at the hands of an English-speaking farmer, not to mention the baker. And Before you finish eating breakfast in the morning, you're dependent on more than half of the world. This is the way our universe is structured. It is its interrelated quality. We aren't going to have peace on earth until we recognize this basic fact of the interrelated structure of all reality.
1: I remember interviewing one of uh, my mentors for a film that uh, we recorded. He, He talked about how he went from you know, living in the suburbs to moving into an impoverished community uh, to start an organization 40 years ago. Obviously, he's a person who had a tremendous amount of uh, excess and wealth to be able to make this uh, happen. Yeah. And so yeah. he did it. And he says, you know, when I was at a distance." it was kind of hard to understand the plights and the problems of my brothers and sisters. But he says, when I moved in the community and I started to attend church with my neighbors and be more proximate and hold conversations, their struggles became my struggles.
0: Mm.
1: It was no longer a them versus me mentality. It was an only us mentality. And I think that is the type of you know, hearts, posture that we should take. Uh, When we look at uh, victims of abuse, uh, when we look at our homeless um, populations, uh, when we look at people who have been marginalized and displaced and excluded, you know, I mean, think about it, man. When I look back in history and I look at redlining and what that did for uh, the black community and not giving equal access to just housing Hmm. and, uh, you know, mirroring that with how uh, persons of color make up, you know, a large percentile of people experiencing homelessness, you know, could that be a direct correlation from not having access to adequate housing? Yes. You know Um, but it was, these laws that discriminate, this discriminated against uh, persons of color or black people were set up by those who saw themselves as being separate. Right. And what I'm saying is when you see yourself as being separate, you set yourself up in a place to do damage to those that you think you're separate from.
0: Yeah. Wow. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I definitely could talk about this all day. I'm curious. I, I wanted to leave with some practical um, advice for people who are, are sitting here. Cause like I said, there's a lot of people who are hearing these things, you know um, I, I think specifically people listening to my show are, are seeing they're going, there's this problem of, you know, sexual abuse. There's this problem of, of, you know, this, but there might be people listening who also strongly resonate. I know I have a lot of people that, that, you know, over the past year or over the past couple years, you know, seeing the racial divide or wanting to become better advocates in that area. People who are seeing homelessness or wanting to become better advocates in this area. So this can really, really be applicable to anybody who has a cause that they're passionate about. Um, But could you give maybe two to to three action steps for somebody who's listening right now and they're saying, I want to be a better advocate. I want to adjust my life in a way where I can better serve people, where it's not just a, Instagram post where it's not just, you know, me being scattered across four or five different ministries at my church. I want to get really focused, really start making a, a big difference. Uh, what steps would you recommend they take after listening to this episode um, and, and start moving in that direction?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, one, I think uh, people need to be realistic about what's on their plate, mm. um, which is uh, very untraditional because I don't want to I I would like I would like to suggest things, but I don't want to suggest things to people who are willing, but they're not available. Right. And I think uh, this availability issue is directly connected to the issue of margin. Um, What do you need to let go of? What do you need to remove your remove off of your plate so you can free up the type of margin in your life where you can give yourself to something In a more consistent way because i tell you um if you have a cause and if you're only given just a small amount you know even though that small amount is important uh you know more than likely it's not going to become something that is rhythmic to your life Mm. it's not going to become the hum that you were talking about where you're not just like giving everything, but it never leaves you. And you never have to set an alarm clock or, and remind yourself about the things that you're passionate about. So the first thing I would say is, I would challenge people to, to let go of a few things, to ask yourself, you know, is this that I'm holding on to really uh, having an eternal impact or um, does it add the type of value that I would really want added to my life in a meaningful way yeah. if I freed myself up to get involved? Uh, in something um, that is related to my heart's passion. Uh, The second thing is change your routine. (laughs) Um, I was given a talk uh, on another podcast or somewhere and a person asked me a similar question. And I was like, bro, like, where do you get your coffee from? And he, you know, named the place. And I was like, you're talking about, you want to be an advocate for black and brown people, but you don't even shop or get coffee from a coffee shop Mm. that's owned by a black and brown person, like change your routine, get out of the comfort zone of your own community. And even if it's once a week, go into areas where you can make yourself available to build some of those types of uh, relationships. Um, Because it's one thing to be a uh, a spokesperson on behalf of someone, but it's another thing to be proximate uh, enough to learn the stories of individuals uh, that you want to pass the microphone to. Yeah, We don't need any more people being a voice for the voiceless. Uh, we have voices already. Some people's voices are heard while others are silenced. We need advocates that are daring and bold enough to use their privilege to pass the microphone. Right. But you can't pass a microphone to a person that you've never been proximate to. Um, and then the last thing is, um, I would say, man, you know, just start, you know, find the place, find the organization, do the research, show up. Mm. I don't even care if it's for 15 to 30 minutes, show up, start, stop putting it off, Um, create the margin, you know, start another routine, um, and show up and then, you know, journal about it, create community around it, uh, talk about it, process it, notice how it's changing you because sometimes we want to just bring change to communities without realizing that those communities already have a lot of treasure. They can change you. Yeah. Yeah. You can become your best version of, of who you are as you show up and walk with people uh, and stand in solidarity in and, and struggle That's, that's what I have. Man.
0: Yeah. I, I can't tell you how much it means to me that pass the microphone because um, that's been something I've, I've been trying to say from, from day one is, you know, a lot of people have talked about, Oh, you're, you, you know, again, even pastors, you know, use your platform for this or why are you present? And I said, it's not really my platform. Like, for every episode, it's somebody else's platform. (laughs) Like I have episodes where it is just me, you know, and, and, you know, of course, yes. Do I have a platform? Yes. Do I have a, do I get to share, you know, my opinion on a a show that, you know, thankfully some people listen to that's great. But every episode where I'm sitting down with a survivor, every episode I'm sitting down with an expert, like I'm passing the microphone to somebody. And, you know, sometimes those people are you know, stooping down to be willing to share a a stage and be willing to grab a microphone and raise awareness about this, you know, but there's, you know, there's people who, like you said, they already have a voice. They're just being silenced. You know, these women that were abused in the church have had a voice, but they've been silenced being in the pew for years and years and years, while many times the abuser has a microphone in his hand every Sunday and is preaching at the pulpit. And so being able to pass that microphone is everything. I mean, that, that sums up so much of what I feel about this show. And what I wish, that's what I wish I would see more pastors and more Christians do is be willing to lean in, hand the microphone to somebody who hasn't had a voice and just listen to them. They may say some things you disagree with. They may be doing some things you disagree with, whatever you're probably doing things that they disagree with, like sit in and listen to the things that are objectively bad and wrong that happened to them and offer support, you know, like offer and sometimes support is just that it's just listening and letting someone share their story and feel that weight come off of, I got to say what happened. And that's really powerful. I, I really do appreciate you, you saying that. Cause I think that's, that's one of the biggest takeaways I hope people take away from this show is it. You know, just as a whole is let people share their stories, pass that microphone and let them say it in their voice, not the sanitized version that you want them to share, like the actual story that they wanna share. Um, that's that's awesome. Um, I, I know we're getting near the end of our time. So I do wanna encourage people, if you haven't picked up a copy, uh, When We Stand, be sure to grab that. Uh, there's a link in the show notes, you can check it out. You can, if you Google it, it'll pop up. Uh, but for, for you, Terrence, if people wanna connect with you, What's the best ways to do that? Obviously, uh, there's some people that may want to know about your nonprofit, but also give them a chance to connect with you uh, personally. If you have a social media platform, that would be best.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, you summarize our conversation so perfectly, and you know, it's been a privilege of being on the show and the podcast with you. Love the work that you're doing. So if you want to look us up, you can you know, look us up at lovebeyondwalls.org. Uh, Love Beyond Walls as Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you want to uh, follow me on any of my social media platforms, that's I'm
0: Terrence Lester, I M T E R E N T E L E S T E R. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, definitely. Like I said, go check that out, guys. Go connect with Terrence. Let him know you appreciate him on the show. Be sure to grab a copy of When We Stand. Um, just buy it right now because you'll forget. Whenever you hear a recommendation on a podcast, always just grab the book. Um, right then and there. It's it's well worth your time. And uh, if you appreciate anything in the conversation, you're going to get that tenfold in the book. But uh, thank you so much, Terrence, for joining me on the show. I appreciate it.